Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. The Avarana Sutta. On one occasion, the Buddha was near Savati in Jiva's Grove at Anathapindika's monastery. He addressed those gathered to hear the Dhamma. Friends, there are five hindrances that overwhelm mindfulness and weaken wise discernment. Sensual desire is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. We talked a lot about this in our past retreat, the difference between sensual desire or the distraction of sensual desire and then to just be sensitive to pleasure. And, you know, one of the reasons why I think the Buddha taught that is um, every religious practice that was around during the Buddha's time was rooted in the, uh, the Vedas and the Upanishads and a couple other um, influences. But he also noticed that when you're taking things in that way, in the, the religious salvific way, that the sensual desire is almost encouraged. And I've never come across anything like that that taught just to be sensitive to pleasure. So all whole human beings have just five senses and that sixth of consciousness. And there's nothing bad to have those. You know, when we start negating our own senses, our own humanity, we are teaching ourselves annihilation because we're here to have a, a full human experience of our life without the distraction that I, it needs to be something different than it is I'm making. And we eventually learn that we become a reference point to what's occurring and deeply engaged in life like we've never been before because we've cut out, we've cut out the middleman, if you will, the middleman being my ego, my sense of who I should be, my sense of how the world should be, which only creates stress. So through the Dhamma, I can let go of all that I'm making and simply be present right here, right now, without the need for anything particularly the state of my mind to be different than it is. John, so, yes, real quick. So sensitive to pleasure, I think that was one of the highlights, right, mm -hmm. from, from the retreat and really coming to understand that. Mm -hmm. Sensitive to pain. How come that's not referenced here equally? Because I've, I've found over the last week being sensitive to both of those things just really helps remove ego from them equally. Yeah, it just depends on the sutta. There's many suttas that not not these. It's talking about a slightly different theme, the five hindrances. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we, we talked about on retreat when there's pain of the body, be mindful that there's pain mm -hmm. in the body, and you know, not as an example. You know, I'm in a lot of pain, moment by moment by moment. And some days it's even worse. Worse. <laughs> um, and when, if, when sometimes when it hits, it just, oh man, I can't believe I'm, I can tolerate this, but I take a breath and I'm sensitive to the pain that's there. So that the, the amount of pain, the gradations of pain really don't matter too much. You know, there's pain in the body. As a consequence of having a human life in this body, there's gonna be pain in the body. Yours might not be exactly the same, but that pain isn't relative. There's no, um, if we're looking for fairness in, in the world, We've lost our minds because the world isn't supposed to be fair and it can't be fair. Everything is impermanent. It arises and passes away. Um, and so there is pain in the body or when there's pain of the mind, be mindful if there's pain in the mind. But that's that's this radical acceptance that this wonderful man talked, isn't it? Yes. Quickly. Um, quickly. I feel like sensitive to pleasure is referencing. I'm not sure what the sutta is where he was taught and you sort of touched on it just now, sensitive to pleasure, sensitive to pain, sensitive to neither, neither pleasure, pleasure nor yeah. pain. Yeah. yeah. And so that's it. So it's sort of a reference back to that without yeah. going into that whole teaching. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's kind of, so I, 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 I thought that, yeah, word, but I'm right. surprised that he didn't, the teaching doesn't call that out here. It's just, well, again, it's, just, it's a different theme, a different subject. That's it's, all. It's, it's, it's just the spectrum of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And to be sensitive, be aware when it is aware and realize it's arising and passing away. Yeah. So the gradation of 
pleasure to pain all comes back to want something to be different than what it is. Yeah. So it's just to be sensitive to it. Yeah, which is dukkha when we're not, when we're insisting that something be different right here, right now, either in me or in the world or whatever's occurring. And things can't be any different than they are. How do I know that? Because here they are. What is to be is what is here. You know, it's not a mistake that, you know, referencing pain in my legs, that's not a mistake. It's part of my deal for having a human life. And I'm, I'm so fortunate to have this human life now being engaged fully with each and every moment without the need to be any different. And, you know, I honestly can't think of a moment, keeping that song one moment in time, of a moment in my, you know, recent five, six, seven, eight years that wasn't just what it is. And there's great, I mean, we, what does Jen always say? We train only for calm. And how do we develop a calm and peaceful mind? Not by grasping after more and maybe even acquiring more, and then we got to guard it, right? It's just being at a reference point to what's occurring. But with a mind, a human mind, that's designed to live that way. We're human beings. We learn to unite a mind in our body so that we can hold in mind the eightfold path as my reference point to what's occurring. And it works. Now, can we continue? I'm not going to say that over again. Sensual desires a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Ill will is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Laziness and drowsiness is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So this last, laziness and drowsiness, and I think the doubt, the fifth one, is what takes a lot of people out of Dharma practice. Uh, for one thing, they might be sitting here waiting for this crazy old guy to stop talking. And you become drowsy. Well, as best as you can, you don't want to give in to that drowsiness and make an excuse not to practice the Dharma or hear these wonderful words. It's to stay with it, stay present, and don't take that personally. And, and within reason. But if you also find yourself um, drowsy often, then look at how you're sleeping. Are you sleeping well? Are you eating good food? Because that's all part of the Dhamma, even though the Buddha never taught, you know, three squares, et cetera, and take a nap every day. But that's the whole point, you know? And, and so as we begin to deepen concentration and, and begin to integrate the Eightfold Path, we'll naturally make wiser choices for ourselves. And again, it doesn't mean we're gonna, we're gonna become evangelists or proselytizers, it's just the opposite. We do this for ourselves. But as I often say, the most loving thing we can do for ourselves and all other humanity is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. Why? Because at least you won't be introducing a conflicted mind to the world and creating more stress. And again, we don't do this because we're saviors, we do it because it's the most practical thing we can ever do. Number four, restlessness and anxiety is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. Doubt and uncertainty is a hindrance that overwhelms mindfulness and weakens wise discernment. So what the Buddha is saying here is if you've taken to Dhamma, to a, a real authentic Dhamma practice, recognize doubt and uncertainty and let it go. Because if you're engaged in Dhamma practice wholeheartedly, whatever your, your, whatever your doubts are, whatever your uncertainty is, will vanish with continued practice. But if you're expecting me or the other Dhamma teacher to say, ah, just keep going, don't worry about it. That's not what we're here to teach. So a lot of our classes um, in one way or another are addressing these five hindrances, how not to let them overwhelm you. The Buddha continues. These are the five hindrances. And then the Buddha again provides a wonderful simile. I will provide a simile. Suppose a swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person builds many side channels so that the current in the middle would be dispersed and dissipated. The slowed river cannot carry along the soup. Misspelling it, I left the word out. The slowed river cannot carry along everything or go far. In the same way, when a person clings to these hindrances, they are weak and ineffective in developing the Eightfold Path. It is impossible for these people to understand what is for their benefit or for the benefit of others. It is impossible for these people to develop awakening and a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. Now suppose a swift mountain river flowing unimpeded, carrying everything with it. A person comes along and closes all side channels by developing the Eightfold Path. 
the middle of the river would be unimpeded and would not be dissipated and dispersed. The swift river, river would carry along everything and go far, meaning our Dhamma practice. All we have to do is engage in it properly. In the same way, when the wise Dhamma practitioner abandons these five hindrances, it becomes possible for them to develop strong discernment and are effective in the development of my Dhamma. The wise Dhamma practitioner understands what is for their benefit or for, those, or for the benefit of others. They understand how to develop awakening and a truly noble distinction in knowledge and vision. So Zaki kind of pointed to this a little earlier. This is a teaching on the hindrances. And like most suttas, the Buddha does not give a complete teaching every sutta. That's why we keep coming. That's why we keep experiencing it. And like we said on retreat a few times, let the Dhamma wash over you. Don't go grasping after it. Everybody can develop the Dhamma if they just are gentle with themselves and gentle with the Dhamma. And eventually, but very quickly, it'll start clicking. And the things will, the, the suttas and what we're doing here just fall into place naturally. The next sutra, another quick one, Nirvana Sutta. Nirvana means awaken, it literally means extinguish. In this case, extinguish the fires of passion, ongoing eye making. The Nirvana Sutta, hindrances. On one occasion, the Buddha was near Savati in, in Jita's grove at Anathapandika's monastery. He addressed those, those gathered to hear the Dhamma. Friends, be mindful of these five hindrances. Again, sensual desire is a hindrance, ill will is a hindrance. Laziness and drowsiness, especially when we give in to them, is a hindrance. Restlessness and anxiety is a hindrance. And doubt and uncertainty is a hindrance. These are the five hindrances. Then the Buddha continues, in order to abandon these five hindrances, the wise Dhamma practitioner should develop the four foundations of mindfulness, the four frames of reference. The wise Dhamma practitioner remains focused on the arising and passing away of the body in and of itself, ardent and alert and mindful while put aside, putting aside greed and distress in relation to the world. So uh, teaching on impermanence right there is just to be mindful that the body is always changing just like everything. And we, we have to allow that progression that the Buddha taught as a very basis for pain and suffering, right? He described dukkha as birth is suffering, sickness is suffering, aging is suffering, Death is suffering, not getting what you want is suffering, getting what you don't want. And he would almost always close that statement by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are suffering. So without getting into that, the five clinging aggregates are the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering that we develop an understanding of and we abandon it. Um, something else I want to say there. Well, so you'll see how this relates to in this suit, it relates to the four foundations of mindfulness and how to properly apply that. The wise Dharma practitioner remains focused on the arising and passing away of feelings in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, while putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. The wise Dharma practitioner remains focused on the arising and passing away of thoughts in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress with reference to worldly events. So we're not here to eliminate feelings or eliminate thoughts or, or um, many of the meditations I've learned before I came to the Buddha was really about de developing some kind of trance-like state, whether it was called that or not, or establishing yourself in the realm of nothingness or emptiness, which again is annihilation. And that's often taught because there's nothing else to teach. Um, and those strange conclusions that people make that compensate for the lack of salvation, what the Buddha originally taught, as in my, you know, my opinion, has corrupted most of modern Buddhism because it doesn't teach to allow feelings and thoughts to arise and pass away as they must for human beings, but to somehow eliminate feelings, eliminate thoughts and get into this trance-like state. And that's just hurtful. I, you know, I did it. I did a lot of seven and 10 days of shenanigans. So it was the underlying point was to get to this trance-like state. And why? You know, it just what, what that's a common um, response to people who just don't like their life for some reason, for one reason or another. As that, they go into salvation, which is always, um, I've never heard anything that, I never heard a religion, and there might be one or two out there, that didn't teach salvation as its ultimate core. 
and I'm not talking about, I'm not against any religion, but to me, that's annihilation. To live this whole life so I get a reward. I want to know what it's like to live right now. And the Buddha said, this is the only life we can have in this present life. And it doesn't mean if a, a religion is <clears throat> just keep it separate from the Dharma because the two are, are two different things. And a lot of times the meditation is taught for the purpose of eliminating stress. That's why people are incented to you know go go you know meditate and it'll take care of your stress because you you know you have yeah. it's doing physical harm to you. Um, and when you when you go into meditation for that purpose, uh, you naturally fall into those those kinds of yeah. teachings because you know yeah if you just shut the mind off you know try to uh, that may for some time eliminate your stress. Yeah, um, and that doesn't get you any any further. No, it's it's it is another mask, and it's just that <laughs> um, it's another way of compensating for the stress and suffering in the world. That somehow we got the idea that I shouldn't have stress mm -hmm. because I pray so often. I should, you know, I should be going to heaven or something like that, um, which is fine. But it didn't do anything for me. I wanted to know again, what does it feel like? What is it like to actually be present for my human life? And I found it, and it's relatively simple, and it makes complete sense. Why would I want to be present for this moment, and this moment, and this moment? And so the Buddha didn't say, "Come to my dhamma." And you'll eliminate all stress. He said, come to my Dhamma and you'll understand stress. And if we can understand stress at the most penetrative level, we're no longer going to create stress in our own life, Salata Sutta. And, and because we understand that dukkha, stress is part of having a human life and our sure and glad to have a human life, it's it, the radical acceptance is the answer, isn't it? And as we as we, as I deepen my understanding of stress, I understand that each and every thought, each, each and every thought contains, contains a component of dukkha, meaning clinging to a conditioned response ongoing you know, throughout my life. Or we can use jhana as, a, as is intended to interrupt that constant flow of one thought to the next thought to the next thought, always gripping to dukkha. I got to get what I want. I got to. I don't want to get anything that I don't want. And that's not life. That's not human life. There is dukkha. Okay, here we go. This refers to the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The wise Dharma practitioner remains focused on the arising and passing away of the present quality of mind in and of itself. I don't need to color it anyway. Ardent, alert, and mindful while putting aside greed and distress in reference to the world. So, Understanding this, the arising and passing away of the present quality of mind is, I don't want to call it the goal, but it's the, it's the ultimate result of Dharma practice because it really is our minds that give us the stress. It's not what's going on out there. We might focus on the uh, bad relationship or the clerk overcharge, whatever it is that we lose our minds over. It's not that. That's part of the world. And, you know, everybody could write a list of all the things in the world we'd like to be different. But that's foolish because it can be. But what's happening? What is to be is what is here. And that last quality, the present quality of mind, the fourth foundation of mindfulness, is the most, I want to say the most important. But when we get to that quality, even if it's temporary, we understand that, yes, mind states are as um, impermanent, impermanent as everything else in the world. But when we learn to control those and understand them, we train only for calm, and that's what prevails. Along the way, we get um, snippets of this experience, and that's what the Buddha says, I have to see, come and see for yourself, see if it's working for you. And you'll find everybody that I've talked to that has taken to practice, they find calm, they find understanding. And it's a gradual process as the Buddha teaches, but the process is, is real, isn't it? The Buddha continues, the wise Dharma practitioner should develop the four foundations of mindfulness, these four frames of reference, in, other, in order to abandon these five hindrances. So two short teaching there, um, one a little bit more general and the nirvana is more specific, why we develop the four foundations of mindfulness. 
that's our basis, basic jhana practice. But there's no advance. There's no there's no higher level or hierarchical teachings in this time. We begin with jhana meditation and we end with jhana meditation. And it's just that. Um, jhana meditation can be difficult at times, but any human being can recognize that they're caught in a thought or a feeling or a thought attached to their feeling. And take a breath, unite your mind and its, and its body. And that's the basic practice. And that's what we carry through from wherever we begin to uh, an awakened quality of mind. So let me go online first and see how my friend Reverend Kevin is doing. <laughs> Kevin, 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 I can't hear you. Oh, there you go. I unmuted. I said a lot of curse words about Reverend. No, no I, <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying, I hope it didn't become a thing, but it did. I'm just trying to be respectful. Thank you. <laughs> so um, thank you for the teachings and uh, really important to review it again. Um, these hindrances tend to arise every meditation, you know, and for me, I think the, the biggest ones are really desire or attachment and um, busyness and anxiety. But of course, the others come up too. If I'm meditating in the evening, then drowsiness and torpor often come about. So, um, but, you know, I think it's desire, you know, to fix things or something, their thoughts about fixing things, something needs to be fixed in the house, uh, something needs to be fixed about me, something about my family needs to be fixed or my friends or whatever. Yeah. And That's it's really, and it, it's clinging, it's clinging to these thoughts that makes that desire ever stronger and yeah. it's eye making, you know? So I think, it, it, you know, with the practice, you can let them go. And just like you let thoughts go, you, you can let the hindrances go in the moment. And then I hope gradually they'll go forever, but uh, at least in the moment I can do it. And thank you for the teaching. Thank you, Kevin. And, and it is only in this moment that we can do it, right? We can't, yeah, I might notice that I gave into one of the hindrances yesterday, but I can't do anything about that right here, right now, except to be mindful that it arises. And when I practice within the Dhamma as it's intended, they do fall away. Thank you. Hello, Mary. Hi, John. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, Dr. Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I think you want to fix people because you're a doctor. So <laughs> that might be it. So be gentle on yourself. <laughs> Sometimes what makes us good at one thing, you know, like being a good doctor versus retirement, you know, <laughs> your strengths can become challenges. Um, thank you for doing the hindrances. Um, thank you for a wonderful retreat, John. Really was great. Um, even though I, even though I've known this with uh, a small K known, I understand it better as a result of the retreat. The whole idea of recognizing and accept, I mean, this seems so basic to our practice. So I've been doing this a while. So it's funny that it's having an impact now, but um, the uh, understanding and creating space between the dukkha that happens in life and our contribution to it. And so, you know, that's what the hindrances are. And for me, uncertainty is one of the things that I'm working through in a, you know, a life situation. And um, uh, and I'm, I'm navigating okay, you know, with the use of the practice and um, not bringing that additional arrow or the additional stress or, um, you know, all of that to the here and now, you know, just really trying to be present with, um, you know, what I can do for myself, but also not adding any other additional layer onto what's already a difficult situation. So um, I'm happy about that. And I'm, and happy is not the right word. It's really, I'm just calm about that. You know, I'm content. I'm, I'm neutral. I'm not up, down. I'm just, you know, trying to navigate as you might in a 
you know, well, maybe that, you know, a small stream or something, you know, just trying to navigate safely. So really appreciate you introducing the hindrances. It, it's very helpful. Um, so thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you, Mary. Hello, my friend, Anthony. Good morning. I, um, I, I think I like the 30 minute meditation because it does give me a chance to manage and work through my hindrances a little bit more effectively. Um, for me, the um, I would say the strongest hindrance I usually get are, I wouldn't even say pain, just bodily sensations. Things that weren't itchy be can become itchy. I could have like this little piercing feeling in my, my legs or, you know, so that it's more mostly for me, that's what it is more than mental, but that the mental part creeps up every once in a while. But I was thinking that what better place to manage the hindrances than on the cushion, you know, because when you're on the cushion, the goal is to concentrate um, and to accept what's happening. And you don't have the distractions that you have in everyday life where you could actually just avoid a thought by get, engaging in a conversation. You're there on the cushion. You have nothing else to do but notice your breath and all these other things become a lot more fuller and alive. So there's more to manage, I think, in on the cushion than in other areas of life. And um, I think for that reason, it makes it a really great practice because if you can do it when you're alone and not, you know, trying to focus just on your breath, you can do it in other situations a little more effectively, I think. Oh, yeah. And so we, we first trained for for uh, jhana for concentration obviously in meditation so that we can take it off our cushion and apply it mm. you know as thomas merton would say in the, in the marketplace you know, we, yeah we he spent 10 years on top of a mountain meditating he came down and he said this is great but if you can't take it to the marketplace what good is it you know, <laughs> you know, we don't we don't spend our whole lives on a cushion we, we spend our lives meditate spend some of our time meditating then we're out in the world and, this stuff uh, easily transfers off our cushion. Yes. The chaotic world that we live in, we can get through that chaos. Thank you, Anthony. Um, does anybody mind being on the clock? You don't, I mean, uh, what is this? <laughs> on the camera? <laughs> no, you don't have to be. It's okay? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to get Laura first. Hello, Laura. I think I got you. No, that's not good. <laughs> Yeah, thank you for that guided meditation. That was very helpful and the teaching. And um, it's good to hear uh, Dr. Kevin and Mary and Anthony's comments. Thank you so much. I was just thinking, I mean, they're all, all the hindrances are you know, related to one another, but, you know, sensual desires are really strong one and I was just thinking you know it's interesting how you know in English we talk about wanting you know there's the verb I want more of this or I want more of that or I want this situation to be different and then there's the adjective I am wanting or lacking in this yeah. you know and I was thinking about how my essential desire you know when it persists off the cushion it's really from this like strong lacking or emptiness feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, wanting and something and therefore, you know, seeking it maybe in an inappropriate way or something. So yeah. I was thinking about that and I was going to ask you, how, how would you describe to someone maybe how, you know, because when we don't really understand what we're trying to do um, as 
you move towards awakening, full human maturity, you'll understand that there's a there's a place for sadness in a human life. We're human beings, a loved one dies, or whatever. The sadness is appropriate, but when we take that too far, sometimes immediately too far, and we're mad at whoever, you know, even if it was an accident, somebody you know, ran over my mom or something like that, it does me no good to hate the guy that did it, even if it was drunk or something like that, mm -hmm. because that just hurts me. We might feel justified, or even just, to, you know, somebody that we love passes away, and we should feel sad, but not in a way that a clinging to that person, wanting more of that person. I used it, you know, my father's way kind of as an example. He died at 101. And when I walked into the, you know, the, where they had him laid out, the place was wailing. You know, I heard, I heard somebody say he died too young. What do you mean? He lived 101 years. I, you know, I'm, but you know, um, it's almost a, just a rote response, isn't it? We gotta, we gotta act like this. But um, we're sad because we understand how wonderful this person might have been to us, but we also need more, don't need more of that person. It's enough. Why? How do I know it's enough? Because it is. There it is. And a fully mature human being wouldn't, you know, wail about something like that. But the, the sadness is appropriate. Every human feeling is appropriate in its in its right place, right? Um, and we're just learning to not take any of those things personally which means our minds are left calm. And we can understand much more, uh, much more deeply what this moment means, right? And so um, any feeling that you can conjure up, feelings arise, pass away, thoughts arise, pass away, thoughts attached to a feeling and emotion still arises and passes away, but that becomes more, more and more difficult. You know, a, a thought attached to a feeling is now becoming a perspective and likely a fabrication, I mean, a, a solid mental mental construct that you might have a hard time unraveling. But if we can still take it to this moment, to this breath, and we can understand where that comes from, I make it. You know, I want something to be different instead of just accepting. And that the appropriate feeling when there's a you know a real loss, not if the if the Yankees lost, I'm, and I get upset over that. You know, I have other problems. <laughs> than just the dollar, but it points me in the right way. So we, we're, we're calming at peace with anything that occurs, and that allows us to meet that moment where it is. And we talk a lot about on retreat that you know, we, we meet people where they are. We meet our dhamma where we are. We met the, you know, the, the, uh, the venerable Juksanim where he was. And that, that's, that's the dhamma practitioner's life. So each and every moment is vibrant and dynamic. And then there's another moment. So thanks your question. Yeah, that was insightful. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. Bridget. Hey, here we go. Here's Bridget. Thank you for your teaching. I think that um, thinking about the hindrances today at this you know point in my practice is kind of a nice reflection. I think I'm coming up at like just about a year of coming to Sangha. And I noticed that I'm uh, kind of settling in a little. Oh, good. And a lot of times when a situation loses its newness, you know, you cling to the excitement of the newness. Yeah. And I've noticed that like I'm having a you know very different experience uh, because of the practice I'm settling in. And I'm feeling just, you know, peaceful, yeah. which is uh, great. And I'm thinking about the hindrances kind of in that you know, space. I'm realizing that that is part of, I guess, my internal dialogue goes along its conditioned lines. Yeah. And I'm using the practice to just interrupt that. That's it. That, 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 you know, which kind of hindrances are more persistent, which ones are easier to let go, which ones I need kidding myself when I think I'm really interrupting them, but I've really just redirected them and put a lovely little spin on it and <laughs> allowed myself to continue <laughs> on it. 
<laughs> um, but even just as that's occurring, just being at peace with that's just where I am in the process. And that's, you know, and you could say in a relative term, which I think is honest, it's better than not being in the process at all for me. Oh, yeah. Um, so it's, it's a nice opportunity to clarify. <clears throat> Yeah, it is, Bridget. Thank you so much. And that it is just that. This is where you're at. And you recognize the hindrances in relation to where you're at. But these also, these aren't difficult um, concepts, are they? They're just part of human nature. And so the Buddha and his brilliance is just saying, you're a human being, you're going to have these things. Don't let them be a hindrance to your practice because you, now you can be mindful of them. If you happen to give in to one or two or all five at one time, there's always the next breath, right? Mm -hmm. And it works just like that. Thank you, Dave. Tracy? Is that right, Tracy? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I got a tricky little mind. You might have to go the other way, John. I can move. Yeah, yeah. This is helpful. That's I move my Christian over. No, you're good. How's that? You're good, you're good, you're good. Okay. Thank you so much for, um, the teaching, very, very helpful, allowed me to reflect quite a bit. And, um, you know, for me, the, the word that's kind of coming to mind as I'm listening to everybody talk and is like courage. Because not to get into it too deeply, but I spent a decades disassociating with all of these feelings. Yep. And um, where I'm at in my journey of meditation is really to like I feel myself as, I, as I'm sitting here I have to like <laughs> kind of have to like hold the line and let the feeling come yeah. instead of saying no you know like I get this real no okay I can I can do this I can sit you know and I think I'm not sure who said it but somebody had said like where, what a better place to do this than just on the cushion because there really is no threat like logically we're just sitting here yeah it feels like a threat physically can, yeah um but then i i found with meditation that if i just hold the line and and concentrate on the breath that it does change and it might not change to what i expected to change to and that's okay like there yeah. might be a longer period of discomfort than I'd prefer. Um, but in this meditation, maybe because it was 30 minutes, I, I'm happy to say that I did get to a moment in that where I actually did feel the feeling of joy and happiness, which comes very rarely for me. And I tried not to cling to it. <laughs> I was just like, here it is, okay, it's going. Um, but uh, that's really what I... I took, so, you know, as you talk about the hindrances, I feel like I'm feeling them all at one time sometimes. And yeah. it's just like, there they are, you know. So it's all somewhat new for me and it requires a lot of courage. So yeah, that's I, yeah, I would say for everyone here, it takes a lot of courage. To, you know, we're, we're ultimately we're facing our own fabricated beings, whatever it is. And they're fabricated because we put them together based on ignorance a very specific ignorance of four noble truths. So as you continue in practice, you'll hear more about those, the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, um, and uh, a, a teaching on dependent origination will, is coming up pretty soon, too. So all of that is part of the Dhamma practice that, you know, you, you start piecing these suttas together uh, and applying them in a way that's useful to you. That, that is just Dhamma practice. So again, we be very gentle with ourselves, understand that it's not just meditation. It's John and meditation on our cushion so that we can for, kind of get to talk anymore. <laughs> so we can incorporate refined mindfulness, meaning holding in mind the eightfold path right here and right now. But that takes a little bit of time. It, the, uh, the more you put into this, the more you're going to get out of it. But everybody also has to fit this into their own life. We, we weren't. Well, maybe you could say Siddhartha. We weren't born to just spend day after day in a so-called spiritual practice. This isn't spiritual at all. But with right effort, we developed it pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. 
I'm glad you're here. And Thank you. You can keep coming. I will. Please. Hello, Zach. Thanks for the teaching, John. Hmm. I'm not sure how much I have to say about these suttas other than just the practice has really helped me manage them incredibly effectively in a very short time. Yeah. But it's remarkable once we become familiar with our minds and learn to be gentle with ourselves and the right perspective. It's not that big of a deal. We, we become, we're, what we're doing here is becoming awakened, but it's the most ordinary thing. It's an extraordinary path, but it's the most ordinary thing a human being can do is wake up and gain full human maturity. So in that sense, it's not a big deal. Um, you know, another way you could say, like Joseph Campbell used to talk about the hero's journey. And you know, in that respect, we should be our own heroes because you know, nobody else can do it for us. But we have a warm and welcoming sangha that is so supportive for anybody, including me. Glad we have it. How about you, Donna Teacher Ron? Oh, I'm sorry, Kevin, did you have something? Yeah, I just wanted to comment that it sounded like Tracy was referring to being sensitive to pleasure. And uh, yeah. Uh, you did. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm sorry, I didn't hear that last, David. I'm sorry, it, it, she was sensitive to pleasure and then it didn't seem to cross over into sensuality and then she let it go as well. So yeah, it's kind of interesting from what we were talking about before. Yeah, there's a, a complete difference between and grasping after sensuality and just being sensitive to the pleasure that's here, including getting these little understandings as we go along. It's so important that we do that, acknowledge it, and that we realize we're becoming rightly self-awakened. And we're all doing that. So the Buddha referred to himself upon his awakening. When I was able, now that I'm a rightly self-awakened, et cetera, et cetera. So as an example to us too, we do it for ourselves. Right, Ron? Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Um, thank you for this uh, reminder. Yeah. Um, and yeah, from time to time, I'll go through the checklist, you know, uh, we'll, we'll check. <laughs> you want to come in your truck? <laughs> Especially. Um, and uh, I, I noticed in, in, uh, at the retreat that um, all of a sudden drowsiness was, you know, from time to time just got to be, <clears throat> here it is. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> tried to do something about it, you know, took a nap in the afternoon or, you know, uh, slept longer. And Sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Yeah. But I knew it was happening. And, and um, in the past, uh, that would have been a, a good reason to, uh, to really doubt my practice. If I can't get yeah. this together, you know, what would, what would um, so it's, it's, which is another reason why the, the 30 minute sit um, is, uh, is a good thing to do. Um, it just gives you a chance to refine things a little bit more. Yeah, I, in the past, and I've noticed this in other people too, but I'll talk about myself, um, drowsiness would lead to um, sometimes anger. Like, why is somebody putting me through this or whatever it might be? And nobody's putting me through anything. It's my choice to be there. And if I get drowsy in a class or drowsy on a retreat, well, we're there on retreat to get the most out of it. Sometimes that means letting drowsiness be drowsiness to, to continue. And it doesn't mean you're not learning. You're probably not if you're reacting to being drowsy. But drowsiness yeah, is just another human. Yeah, it turned out that the drowsiness was there only in meditation. It was never during the talk. It was never during the discussion. Um, I wonder what else going on. <laughs> And what did we say? It's a fun day. Yeah. Thank you, Ron. Hello, Jim. Hi. I'm a teacher, Jim. I was just thinking about um, other 
practices, other experiences that are out, like, you know, outside the Dhamma that lead to certain kinds of experiences. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think that if you're listening to the Buddha's words with like a clinging ear, craving ear, or you're filtering it through a judgy, competitive, defensive, hierarchical ego that you might hear the Buddha saying, my practice good, other practices bad, evil. Yeah. And never said that. That's not what is happening. What is being said? What's being said is this practice teaches you how to not crave and cling to an experience. That's right. No matter how wonderful or no matter how or, awful. Right. So, you know, there's tons because of us being human beings we have the capacity to have in this what was the word brian used phenomenological world yeah. so many possible intense spiritual experiences but if you crave or cling to them, you will suffer. Yeah, guaranteed. So if you want to learn how to not do that, then you need to focus on the Dhamma. Because everything else you encounter in this world is just an experience that you have the potential to crave and cling to because that's the program, that's how our minds work. We crave and cling. And this practice teaches us how to not do that. And I haven't come across any other. Can I ask a follow-up question to you? Yeah, sure. Um, so in that case, everything we decide to do in this life, whether it's, I don't know, I'm just thinking of personally, like I'm, I have, I go to therapy also. I am married. I have dogs. I chose not to have kids, right? There's things that I do. Those are all included also. It's just with the mindset or the perspective of this is impermanent. Mm -hmm. All of it is. And it's not to say don't do this or don't do that, but if you do this, just know that this, like everything else, is not staying the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yes. The, the, the Buddha taught in the in dependent origination, but teaches Samapada Sutta and a few others, Avarana, um, that when this is, that is. And what that means is when ignorance of four noble truths is present, fabrications leading to ongoing stress and suffering. But the, the way out is the path. When ignorance is no more, when that isn't, this isn't. And there's no ignorance of four noble truths, there's no stress and suffering. Um, and that is just ongoing Dhamma practice. You know, um, if, you, if you read the, the, the Saka Vibhanga Sutta analysis of four noble truths or the Magha Vibhanga Sutta, any human being can understand it. But putting it into practice is, you know, that's the real. That's, that's what reality is. And in the beginning, it can seem, again, like annihilation because you know, a lot of people, when they begin practice, they, they, they can kind of see where we're going and they don't like it because it feels like annihilation. But there's a, a sixth factor of the Eightfold Path, the Buddha taught, to keep us going. You know, between, and the second factor, to a right intention, a right effort. Those are designed to keep us going in, in one direction, you know, moving towards awakening. And, and again, I know I say this a lot, but learn to be very gentle with yourself if you're not. You seem to be very quite gentle with yourself to begin with. You don't beat yourself up for stuff like this and that. Um, well, that, that's, a, that's a great quality of mind to recognize and just continue to use that. If something comes up, oh, I, I, uh, this was, I was in doubt and uncertainty. Well, the first thing you do is go out behind a woodshed and beat that. You, you, you just, this is what's occurring. This is what's occurring. And it's, it's your life and it's your mind. 
you know, so we learn, you know, this is my mind. Why, why would I go behind the woodshed and beat the hell out of myself or something that is completely mine? mine. I own it. I have agency over it. And what am I going to do next? Try to deepen my understanding, of whatever it is. And where's my eye making? Mm. You'll, you'll learn as you go along that when you find yourself caught up in a, uh, an event or an interaction with someone, you recognize that this is not me. This is not mine. This is not what I am. You're just a reference point to what's occurring. And it doesn't mean that your, your um, behavior and actions isn't equally dynamic to the moment. You just won't have it colored by I make it. And then our lives remain pure too, free of clinging after and, and uh, insisting that things be different than they are. Uh, but, you know, I will say, it's, you know, it's a fellow dog owner. Maybe, you, know, you really should own a dog too. <laughs> They're a key, aren't they? Thank you, Terry. Um, David? John? Oh, you got it. I got it. Thank you. The Buddha was a good teacher because he would listen to the Sangha, like we're sitting here now, and he would hear the Sangha ask, give me examples. Tell me more. I don't understand what I'm ignorant of. So, he said, well, we have these defilements, greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. And someone in the back, like me, goes, I don't understand that. Give me more. Give me more examples. So the Buddha said, well, how about these hindrances? Because if you really look at the hindrances, it's just greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. Yeah. And that's palpable to people. I can see my ill will arising. I can see when I'm worried and restless, anxiety, I can see that my cloud is, my mind is foggy. So in that sense, but it always rolls back to, this is a practice. You can't take this one little thing and focus on it. It's the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Ignorance is the ultimate hindrance. So again, it's the perseverance, the courage to continue this practice so you can go from recognizing it and seeing it and pushing it aside and then to understand it. Yeah. And that's the whole point is to understand it. Yeah. Not to seek salvation because it's not here. No. But if we can understand Dukkha, then we understand the greatest distraction that human beings have, why things would be different. But it does take a little bit of work. It's, um, you know, the beginning of the cessation of eye making can at first seem like annihilation, you know, something that I've been conditioned to my whole life. Now all of a sudden I got to stop that. Well, it's not really that way, but I recognize something that is. Um, a reflection of my own greed, wanting more of something, or my own aversion, I want less of this, I don't want this to happen to me, that's where we lose our minds. But again, the Buddha didn't leave us there. He showed us what to do with it in uh, a brilliant way. And these, these, these teachings are just as relevant as they were 2,600 years ago. And that's, that's incredible. There's very little that has lasted time, lasted through time that long. Um, and here it is, you know, it's still here for us. It's also nice to think of the hindrances and within your structure of your practice and keep in mind the seven factors of awakening. Yeah. I'm drowsy, I'm yeah. groggy. Well, there's joyful engagement. Yeah. There's a counterpoint to each one of those. Yeah. So thank you, John. Thank you, David. I think you said you were joyfully engaged well that, that's that, that's great to recognize that there's something you'll you'll hear pretty soon uh, when we start the review um the buddha teaches that there's four um sorry we're kind of a little groggy after the retreat <laughs> um the, the four levels of my no that's not that's not right or yeah <laughs> uh levels of meditative absorption and so what you're describing is the, the moving from the second to the third level. And what we described at the end of this, that piece with your mind is the fourth level. So 
I'm not teaching that so you figure it all out right now and grasp that. But you, you're recognizing where your practice is bearing, bearing fruit. And that's so important aspect. That's such an important aspect of the Dhamma. To have the seeker come into you to see for yourself. And our classes are just like that too. So we can discuss that and everything else that comes up within Dhamma practice. But we don't, we only stay, we only teach and are focused on the Dhamma as it's presented on the website. We don't get into other things because they're just a distraction. All right, anybody else? Grab a camera. Oh. Kind of have the automatic camera. Oh, John, I'll say Larry during the retreat kind of brought up the Buddha's own um, story. And I have been taking some interesting comfort in that because right, he left this palace with all of these wonderful things um, because he knew it. Well, I, I don't know. He, he had courage. You mentioned courage, right? But you have to have the courage I've found that I had to have the courage to um, abandon the things that I had comfort in. Yeah. Even if those things were actually, I found real discomfort in those things. But that's just because that's what my mind had been accustomed to for yeah. so decades. Yeah. And that's that's the courage that, you know, I've kind of started to appreciate in the Buddha's own, own story of abandoning something that, whether comfortable or, or uncomfortable, just he knew something yeah. was, was slightly wrong. Um, or very. But my brain had been essentially chemically dependent upon certain fabrications. <laughs> I've been telling myself I was so comfortable in that space, even mm. though it was really unhealthy. What stress? And again, that's just human nature. We don't, you know, if you ask me why that happens, the only answer I have is because of ignorance of four noble truths. But hardly anybody is born without understanding, are they? So the Buddha described the first noble truth as something that was timeless. There is dukkha. He didn't say this going to be dukkha until 2025. To have a human life is going to be dukkha. And he's been right so far 2,600 years. Uh, it works for me. Yeah. But you're so right to, to um, engage with the Dhamma in that way. You know, it, it's, not a, it's not an unrealistically hopeful way. It, it's more like you know, you're taking uh, chanda, true, true desire, through the Dhamma. And that's, you know, again, sense, sensitive to pleasures. In those exactly. yeah. yeah. Talk about all these things we abandoned, but you know, I think the world has expanded so exponentially for me in the last month. How, how so? I mean, just your understanding of what's just going being, on here? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's remarkable. It's much it? bigger than the few stories that were prevalent in my life. Oh, yeah. And that's, as I started, as I continued to restore these suttas, I really felt like I was getting, really getting to know this man. It's the only way possible, but yeah, he's it's uh, he's so self-effacing and authentic in what he says, and he brings himself into this and out of times, and it's just, just like you. If I can do it, you can do it. It's true. Thank you, Zach. Anybody else? All right, we'll finish with meta as we always do. So take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath. And let that mindfulness of your breath unite your mind and its body. Your body, its body. These are the words of the Buddha from the Karaniya Metta Sutta that describes the qualities of an awakened human being. The Buddha's words, this is what is done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. They are able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech. They are humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied. They remain unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways. They are peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. They do not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. They are always mindful that all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. The great or the mighty, medium, short or small. The seen and the unseen those living near and far away, those born and to be born. 
they are always mindful not to, to deceive another or despise any being in any state. They abandon anger and ill will with ease, never wishing harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart, the wise disciple cherishes all living beings. They radiate kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, they maintain refined mindfulness. This is said to be the sublime abider. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted ones, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, abandons the ignorance of four noble truths. Thank you all for wonderful today. Thank you, Jeff. Peace. Thanks, everybody. Okay, good to see you. Thanks, Anthony. See you, Kevin. Okay. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.